Hi, I'm Hermine Hartman, and this is a podcast with Indigo Studio. Welcome. My guest today is the renowned Mr. Paymoon Romney. He's an international film producer and a director, a member of the Board of Illinois Arts Council, former member of the Joseph Jefferson Theater Awards Committee, National Endowment for the Arts, former director of educational and public programs for the DuSable Museum of African American History. His pedigree also includes TV programming, and he is currently on the board of the Illinois Arts Council, in addition to being a member of the board of the Independent Film Alliance. So he is a producer of theater. He is a producer of film. And now he adds yet another title, and that is author when Blackness Was Golden, which is a memoir, and he talks about the era of the 1960s and 80s. He documents it. It is somewhat of a autobiographical story in Chicago uh, and how he became who he became. So, welcome. Thank you, Hermine. It's a pleasure being here with you. So, let's talk about the book. And in talking about the book, we, of course, are talking about you. But why, when blackness was golden, why did you write the book? You know, when I looked at today and what is happening in our environment or what is happening with young people, uh, I realized that uh, the ability to be able to have appreciation for life has to do with your ability to be able to see the future, understand the conditions of your past, and understand that there's an opportunity for you to grow. Without that, there's no reason for you to uh, appreciate anything. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to recount an era that in some ways has been looked upon as based on protest, but not on our growth. And it was, a, it was an elegant period of us feeling good about ourselves. When's this era? Define um, this era by years. Well, let's start with the 50s. So in the 1950s, um, we were moving into an arena of trying to rediscover our manhood. However, it was a period of lynching. It was a period of, of strong segregation. But moving into the 60s, after the death of Malcolm and after the death, death of Martin Luther King, we began to express ourselves in different ways. So we began to wear hair, hair natural. We began to call each other brother and sister. We began to build organizations that were responsible not only for the individual, but for the collective. So we were recognizing our Africanness, our blackness. We were kind of giving it a new definition even. Yeah, and finding it for the first time in some cases. I mean, when you look back at the 20s and Marcus Garvey and his movement, even though he had millions of, of people and members, there was a separation period where his organization was destroyed and we sort of pulled back and splintered even more than what we were. Mm -hmm. But in the 60s, we began to repel that. Mm -hmm. And you had organizations and businesses that were developed. You had the African-American Patrolmen's League, and I'd like to point them out specifically because they were designed not only to help the community, but to help themselves mm -hmm. because they understood how they were being discriminated against in that arena. But you also had community organizations and parent groups at almost every major black high school that was supportive. So you had the concerned parents of Calumet, the concerned parents of Harrison, of Inglewood, of Phillips. And whenever the students were motivated to protest, those parents were there. So I learned something from your book I'd never heard of before, and that was the study 
that John Calhoun from Norway, uh, as he studied uh, rats, talk about that study because you you told me to go research it, and I did. And you talked about how that study with the rats was used for human beings in the projects in Chicago. Talk about that study, if you will. Yeah, John Calhoun created this study around rats that dealt with the density and population growth. What would happen if you put a a number of animals in a cage? You gave them uh, the the unlimited limited space, but unlimited resources the ability to have food, the ability to move around. Once those places became crowded, the behavior of the rats changed. They begin to attack each other. They begin to eat the children. They begin to, to abandon their kids. They begin to show uh, uh, different sexualities, uh, uh, change in their sexualities. And it's the same thing, if you look at the projects, it's the same thing that happened. I discovered that study at um, Chicago uh, Housing Authority. I was working there, and it was sitting on the desk, and I read it, and I'm going, well, this is exactly... So here we are. Here we are, and this is what what happened. And so you had buildings that had a 1,000, more than a 1,000 people in it, spread between 22nd Street and 57th. But it was also a, a, a voting block because you had all these black people there. So to break it up meant that you would never have these people again. My first job was uh, at the um, Chicago Park District. And so I told my mother I wanted to work. She knew I was dabbling in theater. She said, well, go see the precinct captain. And so I said, okay, so I go see the precinct captain. He writes me a note. I take it down to the to housing authority. They hired me immediately. I didn't have to interview. I didn't put in an application. It was part of the patronage program of daily. And so they were, because my mother was paying this money and she was collecting votes, she was given the opportunity to help her children. She could recommend. She could. She could recommend and make it happen for yeah. you. Now, you grew up in State Way Gardens. I, originally, I was born, uh, when I was born, my parents lived in what is considered Bronzeville. So we grew up in 56 between Indiana and Prairie in the, in the tenement buildings that were there. And in 1957, we moved into State Way Gardens when it was absolutely an incredible environment. It was beautiful. Incredibly was positive and good. Incredibly positive. There were manicured lawns, new appliances. The buildings were kept clean. The symphony orchestra would play there on the weekend. Wow. And we would sit in the park and listen to them. ACM played there. We had every imaginable art and, and uh, sport activities in the park district. That's how I met Okoro Harold Johnson and Abinant Joan Brown. Um, ETA founders. Yes, he was teaching theater there. And I, I ran into a rehearsal. I was playing baseball. I ran into a rehearsal with him. And he asked me, did I want to be involved? And so it was, it was an incredible opportunity for us to congregate and to learn and to share. We even had, I think, the first Neighborhood Watch program. There was a lady named Miss Wright that lived on the first floor. She had about 13 children. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't get away with anything in the project. Without Miss Wright. Miss Wright knew what you Ms. were doing. Miss Wright knew what you were she doing. She was the watchdog. She knew who you belonged to. <laughs> she would tell your parents when they came home. And in certain instances, she would whoop you before they got there. And then you get another whooping when you, get, you went home, right? Right. <laughs> but, she, but they kept us in line. And there were men. There were fathers there. Families. They were families. Family oriented. Until they changed the rules. Mm-hmm. And they changed the rules to say that no, the families could no longer live there. 
So let's go back to your beginning in the theater, uh, your work with, uh, with Johnson. He was a mentor, Abner Joan Brown, a mentor. You were nine years old. What happened? What, 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 what was that turn on? What was that light that sparked for you? The first spark was watching them work and feeling the emotion of what they were doing. But the second thing that happened was I saw a production by Oscar Brown Jr. It was called Lyrics of Sunshine and Shadows. It was the work of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. The music was by Keline Phil Coran, and it was directed by Okoro, and it was written by Oscar. That changed my life completely. When I saw that production, I said, this is what I want to do for life. So was it the production? Was it the music? Did you want to sing? Did you want to star? What did you want to do? What was, I, what was the spark? The spark was I wanted to produce and direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was already acting a little, but I also realized at the time that I was teaching that the people that were working with me were much better than me. So I decided I'd be focused on, on uh, acting. But just the, the sheer opportunity to see these, these people create this environment of what I should refer to as a dome, a dramatic organization of musical expression. He basically, his concept was you take a character, you create some music, and you weld a story together through verse and not necessarily in a script and in a book. And so I took that on and I started to create those types of shows. Um, that, that, and, then, and then the final step was I was taken to meet Ted Ward. Ted Ward was one of the founders of the Negro Federal Theater when Nathan Hughes and Richard Wright had done a Broadway show in 1942 and in 1948. I met him, he was about 65, and he took me on his wing. And so mentoring has been has mentoring. played a real role of it's importance for you. A major role, every step along the way. And, I, and someone asked me, because in my book I have a picture of 10 mentors, men, that mentored me along the way. And so someone said, well, why do you think they took you under their wing, and my response was that I don't think they felt it would be wasted. They saw the spark. They saw the spark. And they saw the interest, and they saw the molding, which is what we do as we get into whatever it is that we're doing. You see that somebody, and you say, I can can do this. I can make this person whatever. And they also felt, I also felt Have you mentored? Over 800 young people. 800, okay, excuse me. 800 directly Mm -hmm. and thousands indirectly. Mm -hmm. By We had a program called the um, Teen Talk Radio Theater. Uh, When my my wife, my sequa and I came back to Chicago, we committed to uh, mentor 14 to 19-year-olds because we thought that that was the group that we should focus on. Mm -hmm. And people that were part of that group was Jamal Green, who is now running for mayor, Chance the Rapper, No Name, the Poet, Natalie Battles, who runs the Healing Academy. I can go on and on and on. So you weren't just mentoring them in for theater. You were mentoring them for life. Right, because we never felt that theater or film or any of that was important. The most important thing is that you become a communicator. And, and one of the examples that we used for them was, you know, what athlete makes the most money? Not the best player. It's the best communicator. Mm-hmm. It's the one that can do, can do commercials. You know that's that's where they make all the the, the real money. You say the money's not necessarily playing on the on the field. It's not. The money is the communicator. Because if Larry Bird had been able to be a communicator, he'd have been president. As an example. Wow. But he wasn't. He was from French Lick, and he wasn't a communicator. You know, so he wouldn't run for, for public office. So he would have been even bigger 
if he could communicate better. And, and, and so Trump became president because he was a communicator. Exactly. And not, so, not his politics necessarily. Exactly. And so all we wanted to do with young people was give them the opportunity to understand what it meant to look out of a window and determine what you see. Look out the window. Look out the, you know, when you look see. out a window. Because if you look out a window, you can see the garbage on the ground or you can see the beautiful leaves on the tree. Or you can see the sky. Or you can see the sky mm-hmm. and, and, the, the, and the fact that there are no limits. So it was the, their perception that we wanted to change. And their understanding that their voice was extremely important and they needed to use it to improve quality of life. Wonderful. Now, your book is When Blackness Was Golden. And I want to get into blackness and how has the world of blackness changed? What happened? I think two things happened. Uh, the first was we, we came into a period where we could look up because if you think about the 50s and before, black people didn't even have the capacity to look white people in the eye. We couldn't do it. They had laughing barrels in St. Louis. And if a black person was walking down the street and they found something funny, they had to stick their head in the barrel so that white people would not think that they were laughing at them. When we were driving down the freeway, we couldn't pass a white car, no matter how slowly they were going, without getting arrested. We couldn't eat vanilla ice cream except on the 4th of July. When you think about the fact that a man couldn't protect his family, he couldn't protect himself, he had no ability to stand up. And then we get the 60s. We hit the 60s, and we hit, and we hit Malcolm, and we hit King, and people begin to stand up. And then we have the Panthers, and then we have the development of, of black men and black women uh, on a different scale. What happened? I think what happened is we were afforded the opportunity to expand and to integrate. And as a result, we sent our children away. We sent them to colleges that they were unaccustomed or unable to go to before. And in a lot of cases, they didn't come back. You know, and a lot of that was cultural shock. It was cultural shock. And, but at the same time, you know, if you, if you sent your children to an HBCU in Alabama, that's where they live now. You know, and so the family reunions we used to have and the, and the, and the dinners that we have around uh, Halloween or, or Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, those stopped because our children separated from us. So we sent our children away. We sent our children away, and then we started being more concerned about the individual than about the collective. Which is where we are now. Which is where As we, we live in our silos. Yes. As we individually live in our silos. So that's the that's the social change that occurred that kind of broke us up or separated us or divided us in some kind of way. Yeah. yeah. Having conversation with Mr. Paymoon Romney, and we'll be back in one minute. Don't go away. Small businesses are the pillars of our communities, and they deserve our support. The BMO for Black and Latina business programs provides that support by giving you better access to educational resources, partnerships, and funding. BMO has already made an impact by providing financing to more than 1,200 businesses throughout the Midwest. Business owners who are part of the program benefit from a wide range of tools, webinars, and coaching to help focus on what you do best, growing your business. 
Meaningful partner connections give you access to professional networks and alternative funding sources to help your business scale. And funding for your business comes with expanded credit criteria and competitive interest rates to help you obtain the working capital you need to succeed. If you identify as a Black or Latina business owner, BMO Harris is here to help your business thrive and create capacity to grow. You can learn more at bmoharris.com slash Black and Latinx. When a bank helps you make real financial progress, that's the BMO effect. So I want to talk about marriage. You've been married for 47 years. Yes. And you all have worked together for 52 years. You've had a dual career family. Hard, hard, and hard. You've got two sons, got 10 grandchildren, and you've got three great-grandchildren. I want to come over for dinner uh, when you're all Christmas or Thanksgiving. I want to come and watch you all. What's the secret to the longevity? I think the secret started with how we met each other because we met each other as activists. And so we, we started off by understanding what each of us meant. But your your wife is not a doctor, a lawyer, a different profession than yours. That's that's the art of it, Pay Moon, is that you all are in the same profession. And sometimes in your projects, you're the boss, and sometimes she's the boss. Talk about how that works. Talk about the dynamic of that. For us, it started, it's always started with respect. She She's a graduate of RN, right? So she graduated from nursing school. But when she graduated from nursing school, she got cast in a movie with Ben Marina as a nurse and never went back to the nursing <laughs> she had to. She became a real nurse and yeah. then went back to the nurse and then left yeah. the real nurse, huh? Yeah, exactly. So, but, I, but I think what, ha- what happened with us is that we've always respected each other. And I have not allowed my ego to get in the way of her being successful or whatever it is she's doing. Because what I've always told people is the only better person that you could hire than me is her. Massaqua Myers. Massaqua Myers, yeah. And, and she's, she's been the uh, the head of the Southside Community Arts Center? She's the head of the uh, Southside Community Arts Center. She ran Molly Gibbs um, Academy, uh, Acting Academy in L.A. Uh, she has produced and directed film and television, and uh, she worked for Wolf Trap and helped them to develop their curriculum. We just collectively did the curriculum for the new Performing Arts Academy that opened in Lagos, Nigeria. We wrote that together. Um, but, but we always flip a coin whenever we're going into a project sometimes. And so we'll say, if she's, if she's producing, she's the boss. If I'm producing, I'm the boss. And we have always lived by that. But, but in terms of relationships, one of the things that we set out to do is to never do anything to hurt each other. Because if you really love each other, then you don't hurt each other. And I saw a practical joke that some guy did on his wife the other day on Facebook. And he was laying in the, she was laying in the bed. He took all these rubber roaches and put them oh, all over her. Oh, my gosh. And then he woke her up, right? Oh. That's, this is a joke. I would never do that to her. Why would I want to do that? Why would you want to frighten her, terrify her, her disgust no. her? Our, What's our wrong with you? Yeah. has always been uh, to support each other. And, we, and I said to her when we first met, that if we didn't sustain a relationship, I wanted to work with her. <laughs> you say if we don't, we don't get if this romance thing don't work. We'll let's work, work together. Yeah, huh? we'll, be, we'll be business uh, okay. partners. Uh, so that's been part of it. You've uh, 
you've worked with some of the greatest stars of our time, Samuel Jackson, uh, Denzel Washington, Jeffrey Wright. Talk about that. Talk about working with with, with uh, Samuel Jackson. He looks like he's just a trip. He looks like he would be something to work with. And Denzel seems like quite the opposite that he would just be so lovely to work with. But talk about talk about your 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 uh, your interaction with those great actors. You know, my my first reaction is that a lot of these people I've met as people. Mm-hmm. People first. People first. And, and I've never been starstruck. Mm-hmm. Right. So. The first major star that I ever worked with was Sammy Davis Jr. and then Lola Falana after that, and then Cab Calloway. Was that Golden, the Golden Boy? When he did mm-hmm. Golden Boy, mm-hmm. yeah, and he also funded our, our student movement. Mm-hmm. He gave us money to, to run the protests here in Chicago. And the only person that has ever intimidated me was Gloria Foster, who played uh, Bill Cosby's wife in a number of films. I directed her in a documentary on Dorothy Height, her 50th anniversary in, in civil rights. And um, I was, I, I, I've always loved Gloria, and she was in The Matrix, and I was just intimidated. So I didn't, I never directed her. Why were you intimidated? I don't know. I was. She was a star. I was intimidated. I just rolled the camera, and I hated the interview. So my next project, I directed um, James Earl Jones in the small project that I did with him. I gave him the blues because I said I would never, I don't care who it was, not direct. If I was working with I don't care. You, know? you weren't intimidated by James Earl Jones? By the time I got through her, I wasn't intimidated and not been intimidated by anybody you else. Were, you were freed. I was freed at that point. I yeah. worked with James Earl Jones's father. Did you know Mr. Jones? I, well, I know his work. So he was at the, he was at the, the play at the Goodman. It was a gospel play. And he was that booming voice. He scared everybody. I told you to sit down. I told you no. But that voice, and I was like, oh, my goodness. I was intimidated by him. I've been very fortunate that people um, sort of respond to me rather positively. So when I I went to Denzel, I I spent uh, one of the Fourth of July's at Denzel's house. And a lot of times I don't mention this stuff because people think you're tripping. But anyway, I was at Denzel's, Lars Fishburne was there, and Reuben Cannon, and Victoria uh, Dillard, and some other folks. And it was just a good time not to have to deal with business. Nobody was trying to get a job from anybody. There's a saying in L.A. that they only need you when they need you. And that's true. You get all kind of invitations when somebody needs you. But when you need somebody... They won't answer the phone. You can't find them, huh? can't find them. You can't find them. So, so working with a lot of these folks has been absolutely great. Um, Aretha, James Brown. Um, what about Danny Glover? Da- you know, Danny is one of the most brilliant people that I think I've ever met. And you can't have a conversation with Danny without him saying, yeah, well, you know, I talked about that with Castro. And, we, <laughs> you know, or he'll say, uh, you know, when I was in, you know, with, with, uh, uh, Noriega in, in, in he has all of these incredible stories and he truly believes in his commitment to social justice mm-hmm. and if you look at his career and you look at the career of Paul Robeson um, and people like that and Oscar Brown Jr. goes into that category as yes, well very definitely. It's, it's because they stood up mm-hmm. that it limited uh, Dick Gregory it's, they stood up 
and they, they stood for, for us, and their, their careers suffered, but their minds were free. So the black image, what is the black? I mean, you're talking about people who are really in the great category because they have paid attention to the roles that they've played. They've not played anything just to be playing or just to be paid. They have been very sensitive about that. Uh, They've been careful about that. They've been analytical about that is what am I projecting? I mean, I can imagine those are some conversations to be had uh, as you think about what am I doing? What am I saying? What am I producing? I've had those conversations with Oscar. Most definitely that's where he was. But what has happened to the black image as we know it and as it reflects today? Uh, Two things. There's There's a personal quote that I put in the book that greatness should not be determined by name recognition, but by con- contributions made and lives touched. And so I try to judge people based on that. Like, what have you done? What have you given? But I think part of the, the two, two factors, one of the factors I think is that we're so scared uh, of, being, of not being accepted that sometimes we don't want to be successful. Because we were say re- that again. Sometimes we don't. We, we want to be accepted more than we want to be successful. You can have a successful business and nobody know that you exist. You can have a successful business in the black community, a successful black theater, just for the black community. Community theater. Mm-hmm. But the, but the thing is that most people really want to be accepted by the broader cultural group, mm-hmm. and so we fight more for that than we do for our independent success. Mm-hmm. And in terms of image, you know, when I used to travel around the, the country, I would go, I would go to a city, I would pick up, pick up the phone book, and I would look under either B or A for black or for African-American, and that's what I would go and visit. I would go to the museums, or I would go to the theaters or whatever. If you look now, most of us have stopped referring to ourselves as black people because we think that if we don't, we'll, we will convince white people that they should support us because they don't know we're black. In, when in reality, the they know anyway. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Right? Mm-hmm. So we should be pushing for that. And so what I say to, to artists now is you have to tell your story irrespective of whether somebody uh, accepts it. Everybody should be able to accept a love story. You know, if it's a love story about two, uh, uh, two black people and, you know, they fall in love, they fall out of love, they fall back in love again... If you can't accept that story, that's your own individual racism that's keeping you from doing it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that as a producer, I've got to integrate my cast. We accept all kind of stories from all kind of people. Mm-hmm. I saw a movie the other day called RRR, which is uh, a Hindu movie. Incredible. One of the best movies I've seen in a long time. It's subtitled, you know, a lot of it. But it was an incredible movie. And I was able to sit there and watch it and not and not have to say, well, you know, if it's a Hindu personality is not for me. You could appreciate the human qualities, I aspects could. of it. You've stayed in Chicago. You've 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 lived in Africa. You've gone to New York. You've been in L.A. Uh, and that's kind of where the circuit is, if you will. That's where the business is. That's where the that's where the stars are. But you've always maintained and 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 been rooted in Chicago. Uh, it's a thing with me. Is why do our actors, our entertainment people. Why do you have to leave Chicago in order to be successful? And then maybe you come back and maybe you don't. What's rooted you here? 
There's not a city on the planet like Chicago. Nothing better. Nothing. The Native Americans used to refer to Lake Michigan as Spirit Lake, that it had a creative cultural energy. I think that's true. I, I do, too. That's absolutely true. Nothing too. like walking that lakefront early morning, late night, Nothing like and that. you get some kind of feel. If you don't get a feeling from that, there's something wrong with you. It, it Go is. to the doctor. But you know, I realized when I was in, <laughs> when I went to New York, there were people from Chicago running theaters there. When I went to L.A., it's people from Chicago. Well, you know, in L.A., what they say, if you want the work done, go get somebody from Chicago to do it. You heard that? Yeah. Right. And in New York, they say, if you want to if you want to do it right, go to go get somebody and you will find that Chicago base there. That is right. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's true. And so and then there's nothing like family. I mean, coming back here, I started so young in the business that I knew a whole lot of people. And my first when I first came back, when we moved back. The first person I ran into was my niece walking down the street, <laughs> you know, I'm going, and because every time I, used, I would come back to Chicago, I would go to Harper Square, you know, home. that was home. And that, mm-hmm. that's where I would meet all the people, you mm-hmm. know, I knew whenever I went there, I would see somebody that I knew. Uh, but, but Chicago has all, L.A. is big, it's cosmopolitan, but it is not Chicago. New York is crowded, not Chicago. Um, it's nothing like here. What's up for you? What's what's on the drawing board? You're a creative soul, so I know you are not dormant. What's what's coming no. up? Well, we have another film uh, that we've been trying to find uh, the safe time to be able to do. It's called The Black American. It's written to be shot in Lagos and here. The Black American shot in Lagos. Yeah, but it, <laughs> it's a, it, it basically is about a person who fled during the 1960s and moves to Lagos. And there's an interaction between the father and the mother and the son that brings them back together. Oh, wow, that sounds it's, wonderful. It's a, it's a revolutionary journey, you know, so. That, that's next for us. And then we're, we're consulting with a number of organizations trying to uh, help them to continue moving forward. Oh. Mr. Paymoon uh, Rami, thank you so much for a great interview. You gotta get the book. Observations from the Front Line When Blackness Was Golden, the memoir of Paymoon Rami. It's a great book. You should read it. If you are culturally inclined, if you are Chicago inclined, and if you are a male, this is the book that you should read. And I'm Hermine Hartman with Indigo Studio. Thank you for listening.